PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for June 2008. This month's research reports focus on muscle activation and chronic neck pain, physical functioning and total hip arthroplasty, motor learning in children, functional assessment in Parkinsonism, and exercise response in frail older adults. This month, in our case reports, a physical therapist's examination and evaluation uncovers a misdiagnosis of fibromyalgia. A reloading program leads to unique BMD responses of individual bones in the foot and highlights some limitations in determining BMD response. And the management of a traumatic hip dislocation in a high school football player is described. For clinical summaries of this issue and e-letters to the editor, visit www.ptjournal.org. First this month, muscle activation during selected strength exercises in women with chronic neck muscle pain by Lars Anderson, Dr. Michael Kiar, Christopher Anderson, Peter Hansen, Dr. Mette Zebis, Klaus Hansen, and Dr. Gisela Siogard. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Muscle-specific strength training has previously been shown to be effective in the rehabilitation of chronic neck muscle pain in women. The aim of this study was to determine the level of activation of the neck and shoulder muscles using surface electromyography during selected strengthening exercises in women undergoing rehabilitation for chronic neck muscle pain, which is a clinical diagnosis of trapezius myalgia. The subjects were 12 female workers between the ages of 30 and 60 who were diagnosed with trapezius myalgia. Based on a scale of 0 to 9, the average rate of pain intensity was 5.5. Electromyographic activity in the trapezius and deltoid muscles was measured during the following exercises. Lateral raises, upright rows, shrugs, one-arm rows, and reverse flies and normalized to electromyographic activity recorded during a maximal, voluntary, static contraction. For most exercises, the level of muscle activation was relatively high at no less than 60%, highlighting the effectiveness and specificity of the respective exercises. For the trapezius muscle, the highest level of muscle activation was found during the shrug, lateral raise, and upright row exercises but the latter two exercises required smaller training loads compared to that of the shrug exercise. The lateral raise and upright row may be suitable alternatives to shrugs during rehabilitation of chronic neck muscle pain. Several of the strength exercises had high activation of neck and shoulder muscles in women with chronic neck pain. These exercises can be used equally in the attempt to achieve a beneficial treatment effect on chronic neck muscle pain. Lead author Lars Anderson is a Ph.D. student at the National Research Center for the Working Environment in Copenhagen, Denmark. Next, Physical Functioning Before and After Total Hip Arthroplasty 
Perception and Performance by Dr. Inge Vanden Akerskeek, Dr. Vibrin Zilstra, Dr. Johan Hrotov, Dr. Sierd Bolstra, and Dr. Martin Stevens. Self-Report and Performance-Based Measures of Physical Functioning in People Before and After Total Hip Arthroplasty Seem to Present Different Information. The relationship between these different measures is not well understood, and little information is available about changes in this relationship over time. There were three aims for this study. First, to determine the relationship between self-report and performance-based measures of physical functioning before and after total hip arthroplasty. Second, to assess the influence of pain on this relationship between self-report and performance-based measures. And third, to determine whether the relationship between self-report and performance-based measures changes over time. 75 subjects admitted for total hip arthroplasty were included and examined before surgery and again at 6 and 26 weeks after surgery. The relationships between the physical functioning subscale of the WOMAC, the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index, and walking speed and gait variability were examined by use of generalized estimating equations, which included interactions with time and the pain subscale of the WOMAC. The relationship between self-report and performance-based measures of physical functioning was poor. Pain appeared to have a considerable influence on self-reported physical functioning. The relationship did not appear to change over time. The influence of pain on self-reported physical functioning serves as an explanation for the poor relationship between self-reported and performance-based physical functioning. When using a self-report measure such as the WOMAC, one should realize that it does not seem to assess the separate constructs such as physical functioning and pain that are claimed to be measured. Lead author Dr. Inge Vanden Akerskeek is human movement scientist and epidemiologist in the Department of Orthopedics, University Medical Center, Groningen, at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Next, Motor Learning in Children, Feedback Effects on Skill Acquisition by Dr. Catherine Sullivan, Shalish Kontak, and Dr. Patricia Berntner. Reduced feedback during motor skill practice benefits motor learning. However, it is unknown whether these findings can be applied to motor learning in children, given that children have different information processing capabilities than adults. The purpose of this study was to determine the effect of different relative frequencies of feedback on skill acquisition in children compared with young adults. The participants were 20 young adults and 20 children. All participants practiced 200 trials of a discrete arm movement with specific spatiotemporal parameters. Participants from each group were randomly assigned to either a 100% feedback group or a reduced 62% faded feedback group. Learning was inferred from the performance on the 24-hour delayed retention and reacquisition tests. All participants improved accuracy and consistency across practice trials. During practice, the adults performed with significantly less error than the children. Adults who practiced with reduced feedback performed with increased consistency during the retention test compared with those who practiced with 100% feedback. In contrast, children 
who received reduced feedback during practice performed with less accuracy and consistency during the retention test than those who received 100% feedback. However, when feedback was reintroduced during the reacquisition test, the children in the reduced feedback group were able to improve their performance comparable to those in the 100% feedback group. During motor learning, children use feedback in a manner different from that of adults. To optimize motor learning, children may require longer periods of practice, with feedback reduced more gradually compared with young adults. Lead author Dr. Catherine Sullivan is Associate Professor of Clinical Physical Therapy in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the School of Dentistry at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. Test Retest Reliability and Minimal Detectable Change on Balance and Ambulation Tests the 36-item short-form health survey, and the Unified Parkinson Disease Rating Scale in People with Parkinsonism by Dr. Teresa Steffen and Megan Sini. Distinguishing between a clinically significant change and change due to measurement error can be difficult. The purpose of this study was to determine test-retest reliability and minimal detectable change for the following. The Berg Balance Scale, Forward and Backward Functional Reach, the Romberg test and the sharpened Romberg test with eyes open and closed, the activity-specific balance confidence ABC scale, the six-minute walk test, comfortable and fast gait speeds, the timed up-and-go test, the medical outcomes study 36-item short-form health survey SF36, and the unified Parkinson disease rating scale in people with Parkinsonism. 37 community-dwelling adults with Parkinsonism with a mean age of 71 years participated. The subject's median score of 2 on the Hone and Yar scale was on the lower end of the scale. However, the scores ranged from 1 to 4. Subjects were tested twice by the same raters, with one week between tests. Test-retest reliability was calculated using intra-class correlation coefficients, Minimal detectable change was calculated using a 95% confidence interval. The intra-class correlation coefficients for test-retest reliability were above 0.90 for the Berg Balance Scale, ABC Scale, the sharpened Romberg test with eyes closed, the 6-minute walk test, and comfortable and fast gait speeds. The minimal detectable change values for those functional tests were the following. 5 out of 56 for the Berg Balance Scale, 13% for the ABC Scale, 19 seconds for the sharpened Romberg test with eyes closed, 82 meters for the 6-minute walk test, 0.18 meters per second for comfortable gait speed, and 0.25 meters per second for fast gait speed. The intra-class correlation coefficients for the test-retest reliability of SF36 scores were above 0.80 with the exception of the social functioning subscale. The minimal detectable change values for the SF36 ranged between 19% and 45%. For the Unified Parkinson Disease Rating Scale, the minimal detectable change values were 4 out of 52 for the Activities of Daily Living section, 
11 out of 108 for the motor examination section, and 13 out of 176 for total scores. Minimal detectable change values are useful to therapists in rehabilitation and wellness programs in determining whether change during or after intervention is clinically significant. High test-retest reliability of scores for the Berg Balance Scale, ABC Scale, Sharpened-Romberg Test with Eyes Closed, 6-Minute Walk Test, and Gate Speed make them trustworthy functional assessments in people with Parkinsonism. The SF36 and Unified Parkinson Disease Rating Scale provide quality of life and disease severity rating values in the ongoing assessment of people with Parkinsonism. Lead author Dr. Teresa Steffen is professor in the program in physical therapy at Concordia University, Wisconsin, in Maquan, Wisconsin. Next, validity of values for metabolic equivalence of task during submaximal all extremity exercise and reliability of exercise responses in frail older adults by Dr. Marissa Mendelson, Dr. Denise Connolly, Dr. Tom Overend, and Dr. Robert Petrella. Physical therapists and rehabilitation professionals in hospital and long-term care centers are using all-extremity, semi-recumbent exercise machines in their treatment programs. This study has two purposes. First, this study investigated the concurrent validity of values for software-generated metabolic equivalents of task from an all-extremity semi-recumbent exercise machine and directly measured values for metabolic equivalents of task from a portable metabolic unit across a range of submaximal exercise intensities. Second, this study sought to determine the test-retest reliability of oxygen consumption and heart rate responses in older adults between standardized sessions of submaximal all-extremity aerobic exercise. The study participants were 18 older adults, 3 women and 15 men, with an average age of 82 years. Participants were living in long-term care centers and completed two test sessions of a standardized exercise protocol one week apart. The exercise protocol included a warm-up period, three four-minute stages of exercise at incremental workload levels, and a cool-down period. The following data were recorded continuously throughout the exercise protocol. Breath-by-breath -breath metabolic data from the portable metabolic unit, heart rate, metabolic equivalence of task values from the exercise machine, Borg rating of perceived exertion scores, and watts. The concurrent validity of the metabolic equivalence of task values from the exercise machine and the portable metabolic unit ranged from very good to excellent on both day one and day two. The test-retest reliability of participants' heart rate responses and metabolic equivalence of task values from the portable metabolic unit was moderate to high across submaximal exercise intensities. The metabolic equivalence of task values generated by software in the exercise machine were representative of directly measured oxygen consumption values across a range of submaximal intensities during all-extremity semi-recumbent exercise in older adults with multi-system impairments. Lead author Dr. Marissa Mendelson is a postdoctoral fellow at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.
Finally this month, three case reports. First, misdiagnosis of serotonin syndrome as fibromyalgia and the role of physical therapists by Dr. Gregory Alnwick. With increased use of serotonergic medications, a condition triggered by serotonin excess within the brain and spinal cord has emerged and may be gaining prevalence. The purposes of this case report are, one, to describe how to identify serotonin syndrome in a patient who is taking citalopram on the basis of signs and symptoms, and, two, to promote the ability of physical therapists to recognize such signs and symptoms. The patient was a 42-year-old woman referred for physical therapy with a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. The physical therapist recognized that the patient's symptoms did not resemble those of fibromyalgia and recommended referral to a neurologist for further diagnostic testing. The patient was referred to a neurologist who diagnosed serotonin syndrome related to the use of citalopram. The patient was weaned off citalopram and made a successful recovery, with scores on the Oswestry Disability Index decreasing from 70% prior to diagnosis to 28% at discharge from the physical therapy treatment and to 0% at the six-month follow-up. The patient has since returned to her prior activity level, which includes skiing, motorcycle riding, and working at her consulting firm. This case report demonstrates how careful evaluation by the physical therapist indicated that signs and symptoms were not consistent with fibromyalgia, and further medical evaluation revealed the actual diagnosis of serotonin syndrome. Dr. Gregory Alnwick is staff physical therapist and master clinician at Genesis Rehabilitation Services, Gorham Outpatient Clinic, in Gorham, New Hampshire. Next, bone mineral density of the tarsals and metatarsals with reloading, by Dr. Mary Kent Hastings, Dr. Judy Gelber, Paul Kameen, Dr. Fred Pryor, and Dr. David Senecor. Bone mineral density decreases rapidly with prolonged non-weight bearing. Maximizing the bone mineral density response to reloading activities after non-weight bearing is critical to minimizing fracture risk. Methods for measuring individual tarsal and metatarsal bone mineral density have not been available. This case report describes tarsal and metatarsal bone mineral density with a reloading program as revealed by quantitative computed tomography. A 24-year-old woman was non-weight-bearing for six weeks after right talocrural arthroscopy. Tarsal and metatarsal bone mineral density were measured with quantitative computed tomography nine weeks after surgery, that is, before reloading, and 32 weeks after surgery, that is, after reloading. A 26-week progressive reloading program was completed. Change scores were calculated for bone mineral density before reloading and bone mineral density after reloading for the tarsals, the metatarsals, the total foot, which was the average of all tarsals and metatarsals, the bones of the medial column, and the bones of the lateral column. The percent differences in bone mineral density between the involved side and the uninvolved side were calculated. Before reloading, bone mineral density of the involved total foot was 9% lower than that on the uninvolved side. After reloading, bone mineral density increased on the involved side and uninvolved side respectively, 22% and 21% for the total foot, 16% and 14% for the tarsals, 29% and 30% for the metatarsals, 14% and 15% for the medial column bones, 
and 28% and 26% for the lateral column bones. After reloading, bone mineral density of the involved total foot remained 8% lower than on the uninvolved side. The results showed that the increase in bone mineral density with reloading was not uniform across all pedal bones. The metatarsals showed a greater increase than the tarsals, and the lateral column bones showed a greater increase than the medial column bones. Lead author Dr. Mary Kent Hastings is assistant professor in the program in physical therapy in the School of Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Last this month, Traumatic Dislocation of the Hip in a High School Football Player by Dr. Charlotte Yates, Dr. William Bandy, and Dr. R. Dale Blazier. Although traumatic dislocation of the hip often occurs as a result of automobile accidents, dislocations have been reported to occur during sports activities as well. Using the experience of treating a 17-year-old high school football player with a posterior dislocation complicated by involvement of the sciatic nerve, this case report provides background information on hip dislocations and provides a description of the immediate treatment by the physician, followed by six weeks of immobilization, and a detailed account of the five-month intervention. The patient was injured while making a tackle during a high school football game when another player fell on him from behind. This case report describes his plan of care after immediate hip reduction surgery and six weeks on crutches. Generally, the program utilized a progression of non-weight-bearing resistance training and stretching in the initial stages of intervention and progressed to weight-bearing activities on land and in the pool as the patient was able to tolerate more stress. In addition, the treatment of the sciatic nerve using electrical stimulation during treadmill walking is described. The patient was seen in an outpatient physical therapy clinic an average of two times per week for five months. At the end of five months, results from the lower extremity functional scale indicated that recreational and sporting activities were within normal limits, and the patient was able to return to playing on his high school football team the next year. Lead author Dr. Charlotte Yates is assistant professor at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway, Arkansas, and research scientist at the Center for Translational Neuroscience at the University of Arkansas Medical School in Little Rock, Arkansas. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. For feedback on this podcast, email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. We look forward to hearing from you.